and we're live. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. John McNichol, introduce himself. So can you tell the listeners and viewers who you are? Absolutely. And thanks again, JR, for having me here. I'm having a great time already. Um, well, yeah, for those who don't know me, my name is John McNichol. Uh, I'm 52 years old. Originally, I'm from Toronto, Canada, and I was born at the dawn of the swinging 70s. And that probably explains why I'm such a big fan of the big 80s. Uh, originally, yeah, originally I said I was from Toronto, and I spent the first 18 years of my life there. Uh, I ended up going to college down in the States, met my wife. And then when I graduated from college in 92, we moved up to the Pacific Northwest. And we were there for about 25 years and somehow had seven children. Um, you know, you got uh, stuff to do. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. People ask me, how do you have time to read books? I say sleep is for wimps, and I keep doing my thing. But uh, I, <laughs> I only partially joke now and say back about 2016, we escaped from Portland. And uh, now we live down in Texas, and I love it down here. People are great. The heat is awful, uh, but uh, that's about the only thing I you know, would change about life down here if I could. But everything else has been grand. Um, my wife is uh, doing well here, too. My kids love their schools. Keep the fingers crossed that everything keeps on going well. And, yeah, I've been able to write a number of books on the side, so it's been good, too. Do you ever throw in an occasional eh just to, you know, make them know you're Canadian? I do that, but, you know, the weird thing is it doesn't really pop up until I talk to friends who are from Canada. And then my wife goes nuts because then I'll also have all the other pronunciations. Like I'll say Tuesday instead of Tuesday and stuff like that. <laughs> so it all comes out. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> So do you ever have the uh, the occasional craving for, for Timmy Hortons? You know, Tim Hortons kind of got big started after I was gone. But okay. I am, I do, if anybody ever wants to do me a solid, I totally miss uh, this one hamburger chain that is only in Canada called Harvey's. I've, I, I would just crave Harvey's burgers still. Ten years since I've visited home. I still want those Harvey's burgers. But yeah, there's that and poutine. I love poutine. That's me. That's the one with cheese curds on fries. Yes, I saw poutine. You know, you're probably a gamer if you as well, or at least familiar enough with gaming lore. Poutine is French fries with cheese on top, hot gravy over that, and I've seen some purists who will take a squeeze packet of ketchup and a squeeze packet of white vinegar. We have that in Canada in the McDonald's, and they'll just do a double shot of that over it. It's a TPK for your heart. It's a total party kill. I mean, you just smell the stuff and you can hear your artery snapping shut all the way down if you've done it right. It's good. <laughs> so I did some training at the Vermont National Guard base. It's pretty close to the border to you. I think it's close to Quebec. I don't know. I'm I'm not familiar with Canadian geography. So whatever's right above Vermont, we, we did some training <laughs> up there. And um, yeah, those mountains were no joke. Yeah, I don't really, you know, to be honest, I don't know what borders on Quebec anyway either because I'm from Ontario. And we joke and say we hate the French. You know, every couple of years, Quebec like votes whether or not they're just going to leave Canada. And a lot of English Canada says, just go, go. You know, you, you'll be back, but just go for now. You know, quit whining about everything. But they always stick around by about half a percentage point. So, yeah. 
you haven't missed much. I say <laughs> that, of course, my dad is, uh, is, is, from, is from Quebec. I can tell you're English because you say Quebec instead of Quebec, the way a lot of us were encouraged to say. So it's okay. Oh, um, yeah, I speak English and not always very well. Uh, I took German and well, first I started with Spanish in high school uh-huh. and um, the teacher was so poor at classroom management that I was just not where we needed to be. And so when I started the third year and I was actually expected to understand things, oh I realized it was too little too late. So I'm like, well, I'll start a new language because you either had to do three of one or two of two different languages. Oh boy. And I switched to German and that's a lot easier. You just have to sound very angry and like you want to spit on somebody <laughs> and then talk. It worked out perfectly. Um, I don't, I don't know if they're as angry as they sound, but it, it definitely helped me fake the funk for college and high school. So oh. I, I didn't have to worry about it. Oh, and, and I speak the international language of love, oh, okay. sometimes called M16. You know, sometimes the rifle. Called M16, the rifle. Oh, that's the international language of love. <laughs> that's funny. Um, no, in French, so, I just basically waved a white flag every now and again. And I think that's why they passed me. So, I mean, you know, you get through it however <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. You, you should. You should. I mean, you know, <laughs> hey, I'm a quarter French. I can make fun of them as much as I want. I'm not offended. You know, I'm Gen X. It's hard to offend me. It's really hard to offend. And yeah, we grew up on Beavis and Butthead and yeah, exactly. All that. Grew up with Beavis and the most irreverent group of people. All of it. Yeah, all of it. <laughs> but um, but yeah, see, uh, we didn't really deal with the French. Although there a couple of years ago, there a couple of articles came out about you know the joke about surrender monkeys with the French, and they're like, no, the modern French army isn't like that. And there was like a whole PR campaign. Of course. I just remember when I was in Iraq, they told us it was about winning the hearts and minds uh, at year three of the war. Uh-huh. And my uh, my platoon sergeant's a crusty old Southern guy. And he's like, just grab him by the balls and the hearts will follow. <laughs> and so actually, that, and that's when he told me we spoke the fluent, the language of love with the M16. Actually, I think that is a twisting of a quote by, hold it, um, LBJ. He said, if I have them by the, you know, and, I apologize to anybody who is scandalized by my phraseology here, but LBJ apparently said, if I've got them by the short and curlies, then the hearts and minds will always follow. So that works out really good. <laughs> he was old enough that that actually fits. There you go. <laughs> he had served in Vietnam for mm-hmm. three tours, got really? out and he hit that mark. Um, he got out and he hit that mark where everyone's like, you know, if I just stuck in, I'd be retiring right now. <laughs> And so we enlisted in the guard. Oh, okay. And so that's how in early war in 04, we had a, a three-time Vietnam vet as my platoon sergeant. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's really cool. For a second, I thought you were saying LBJ was said served three terms. I'm kind of like, what? Okay. There we go. No, 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 no. Um, um, he would have been alive when LGB, uh, LG, LGJ <laughs> would have said that. Wokey and slip. Uh, so there we go. <laughs> yeah, he, he would have been allowed to hear it. So it makes sense that he would paraphrase that. <laughs> but um, all right. So let's get back on the interview. We've already gone far afield. I can already tell I'm going to like you. Oh, so the you. next part of the thank introduction, you. dear listener, is how we found them. And I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty confident that he was one of the ones Declan Fenn sent us. Yep. Uh, he sent us a decent number of uh, um, authors across the, the spectrum. So it was uh, Break Up the Monotony. Uh, the, the problem is, is once you get a podcast and you're on year three of this, and uh, with the sci-fi side, year five, you start a, you've already interviewed everyone you know. And so you can either get really nepotistic and just keep interviewing them, or you have to branch out. And so Declan's been trying to help us find people we wouldn't otherwise known in our circles, because he's a little bit all over the place with his writing. 
oh, so you're not just scraping the bottom of the barrel talking to me. Okay, I feel better. I mean, maybe Declan was, but that's not how I found you, sir. I know, I know. All right, sir, but before we let this interview continue, I have to ask the religion question. Are you ready for this? Oh, yes, 100%. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Oh, that's a good one. Okay, here's my answer. I like Star Wars for the message. I like Star Trek for the preaching. Well, it's not too intense. And I like Firefly for the one-liners, scriptures, if you want it like that. So there we go. And they've got a seriously kick-butt board game, Firefly does. That's what I, that's what Dude, I like. There's a board game for Firefly? You did not know this? Oh, I man. Did not. Yeah. What is it? What's it like? Is it like a card game? Is it an actual board game? It's it's a board game, but you use cards. You have a poker hand. You try to misbehave. You try to you know heist stuff. It's great. I mean, if you've got people who know the Firefly lore, and uh, you've got about five hours to kill, you know, it's a ball. You know, and we, we my family loved it. Yeah, I'm the only it- gamer in my family, but even my kids who aren't 100% gamer like doing it. Are you more or less likely to destroy a family with this game than you would with, say, Settlers of Catan? Uh, I think Settlers of Catan has been the subject of far more fights in my family. Uh, <laughs> I have one son, uh, one of my four sons. He's that kid who's incredibly competitive and was cheering how he had won like 15 straight victories. And so, of course, when we were building everything, uh, I and his other brothers, what are we supposed to do? We all ganged up and cut him off. And he got upset and quit and said, I'm done. I'm like, okay, that breaks that breaks your streak. That doesn't count. And, of course, you know, it's one of those family arguments that gets all heated and stuff like that. And then 10 minutes later, it's like, oh, cool, Star Wars is on. Let's do, you know, we do something else. So, but, yeah, <laughs> Catan is the source of a lot more family strife than the Firefly. Some of those that, that are the gifts that keep on giving because you still talk about it. Yeah. Uh, my stepdad and I, I went to a Boy Scout camp mm-hmm. and uh, I did, we had the rifle marksmanship and I got, I came in second. I, I lost to a Russian exchange student who complained that he wanted to go again because he got 99 out of 100 and I came in oh, second with 95 one of those. points. <laughs> He's one of those. And I'm just yeah. like, dude, take the win and go. <laughs> right. Like I was pretty, pretty pleased with 95 out of 100. Uh-huh. And I don't even remember how they scored it. Just, that was the final score. Mm-hmm. And so because I was riding so high and so sure of myself because I'd come in second out of the camp when we did the archery, I'm like, I bet I could hit a bullseye to, to my stepdad. Oh, He's like, no. I'll bet you $5 that you can't hit a bullseye. So I pull back, I let it go, and I hit a bullseye. Three rows over and four rows back from the one I was aiming at, but I still hit a bullseye. And so we have, we have, he has not settled that debt because he swears it doesn't count because the the implication was my bullseye, where yeah. I, I would argue that the rules never specified which bullseye. <laughs> and we still argue about that on occasion just for the fun of it. Okay, I've got one better for you. When I was in the archery club in grade nine, I actually, we had an archery club, and one fellow said, I'll bet you 10 bucks. My friend Dan Chittenden said, I'll bet you 10, I'll bet you 10 bucks I can shoot the bullseye. I said, if you get a bullseye, I'll give you a 20. And he did get the bullseye. But I pulled out, I had a $20 bill of some obscure East Asian piece that was like worth about 10 cents. And he's like, I said A20. I said A20. <laughs> I, I think like he's it. still kind of mad at me about that. You know, we still bounce that back and forth now and again on the on the, on the uh, alumni website. But that's And that would have been worth a lot more back then if it was a real 20. Probably, probably. Well, it was a Canadian 20, so... You know, that plus 50 cents will probably get you a Coke, but who knows? Well, I mean, 
even if that's true now, it would have been worth more then. Maybe you could have gotten two Cokes. Yeah, you're right. There you go. So, all right. So, uh, on with the second part of the religion question, because we're polytheistic here at the Blasters of Blades podcast. Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, or Conan the Barbarian? Okay, well, I'm going to try and not beat around the bush too much here. Definitely Conan the Barbarian, and not just because I'm a child of the 80s and Arnold was everything, you know, during that decade, but also because of the pretty blonde gal who was his love interest who died halfway through the movie. Don't remember her name, but, you know, she was just the pretty blonde chick. But also because I've never seen Game of Thrones, quite frankly. Um, I know some people might get mad at this characterization, but I, you know, with the number of children we have and the number of things I've got, I honestly didn't have the time to invest watching a miniseries, especially when my daughter said, oh, it's basically just Lord of the Rings with naked people. Okay. Um, moral issues aside, I don't have time to invest in another Lord of the Rings, and I'm sure not going with the Amazon one or any of the other ones. So yeah, definitely Conan. Wheel of Time, it's one of those, Robert Jordan, I, I, I like his stuff, but I've never gotten into Wheel of Time. And my understanding is, again, the miniseries left a lot to be desired among the fan base. Would that be accurate? I've seen it, but I haven't read his books. Okay. Um so I don't know how it compares. I, when I watched the first episode, I just remember thinking, just, do they hate all men because the way the, the universe was? Mm -hmm. And then I called a friend of mine, uh, Jesse, and I was asking him about it because I know he was a huge fan. He read all the books. And he's like, no, they just crapped out on all the lore. So as a standalone generic sci-fi, I mean, excuse me, fantasy, it was okay. I didn't hate it, didn't love it, nothing special. The armor was crap. They needed someone who understood period history mm -hmm. to try to make it look realistic. I don't know where, after having watched Lord of the Rings, the movies, and seen what it can look like, mm -hmm. like seeing this was like, how is 10 years later we got worse? Yeah. Right. Um, but it wasn't horrible. The people that knew the lore though were very upset. Yeah. Um, so. I have a rule that if the property is out in book and movie, um, <clears throat> I try to watch whatever or read whatever was first and then I'll do the other menu, uh, venue because that's more authentic to the vision of the creator. Uh, and it just helps me enjoy it better. So if the movie was first, I'll watch the movie, then I'll read the book. If the book was first, I'll read the book and then watch the movie. But I also have a, policy against starting books i know i'll never get an ending for because it'll just drive my little ocd brain bonkers oh sure and so unfortunately game of thrones the uh, grimdark which i don't generally read anyway mm -hmm. i just don't know that anyone's ever going to get an ending for that yeah he's been like 20 years waiting on the last book i mean i i can't really judge because i've been like 10 years getting the third one in them, my series but yeah i've heard it's been a long time no one's ever no one's gotten an end to the actual series yet and he's not writing that now. He's writing like prequel stuff. I, I think he wrote himself into a corner. Okay. My guess. I don't know. I haven't read it. I just, you know, heard people talking about it. Either way, I just, I, I can't start a series that I know I'll never get an end for. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me too. I wouldn't so, know. That's me. Uh, but I mean, I don't hate it. I know lots of people who love the Grim Dark. So, I mean, I've got no problem with it. Uh, there's a podcast that if you guys, dear listener, haven't listened to it, it's called The, uh, the Angry Staff Officer. And it's basically military officers that then analyze movies on their podcast for the mm -hmm. tactics. So they like broke down all the strategic blunders of Rogue One for Star Wars. Uh, they did a bunch on the various battles for Game of Thrones. And they just like talk about all the mistakes in logistics that they made that would have meant that that could have never happened. Or if that's what happened, why it was wrong. And so, yeah. so some of the breakdowns of the combat they did were hilarious. So if you haven't, well, if you haven't found them on the podcast platforms, you guys should check them out. I think I will. Yeah. What is the staff sergeant? It's, 
the angry staff officer. So they're all like majors. Okay. It's the uh, when when officers go out of company level field command. Okay. And they have to go to a desk job, so all of them are angry because they went from doing <laughs> cool stuff to paperwork. So okay. the joke was the staff officers were always upset, so they named their podcast the Angry Staff Officer. You see, if they do tactics, I'd hate to see what they'd say of Conan because the basic plot of almost every Conan novel, one way or another, Conan gets dropped in the middle of an army and he wipes them all out at the end. So <laughs> it's just like I don't know that they would go that far back to the classics. I mean, I I haven't I haven't heard them do one, but I don't know they wouldn't. But yeah, that's that's kind of a tropish, you know, um, a product of its time, shall we say? Sure, sure, definitely, definitely. Um, but I did enjoy. It. I did enjoy. It. Yeah, it was good. Uh, and Red Sonia that came after, I think, was, uh, was it a good one. <laughs> well, the movie so. itself, you know, terrible. But again, I remember I was a teenage boy reading the comic books, and Red Sonia had the fabled chainmail bikini. So, I mean, realism, schmealism. She's beautiful. <laughs> drop, drop two bucks yeah. in the book, you know, that kind of thing. And, and now uh, all of the comedy skit channels do the the joke about the uh, this chainmail bikini, and somehow they get the same protection as the guy in full plate. Well, yeah, and actually, I did see an RPG once because I am a gamer. I'll admit it; I love GMing, but uh, I did see an RPG once where they set, they actually gave the same level of protection to a chainmail bikini as they did plate mail, and the argument was it's so distracting to the person who's trying to hit this poor young lady that uh, they end up keep on missing and just hitting all the metal parts on it. So there you go. It's uh, that works justification. So not realistic at all, but justification. It's there. Hey, it's fantasy. Roll with it, I guess. <laughs> so what's your uh, what's your game system of choice? Uh, me? Well, you know, if there is such a thing as adult ADD, I've got it in spades. And so I prefer me. I love a game engine called Savage Worlds. Uh, it's great okay. for storytelling. Yeah. It's great for storytelling. It's got a minimum of number crunching. And for me, the best part, when we're trying to figure out initiative and combat you get the fabled deck of playing cards and you just deal them out and boom. And combat that would take six hours in a Dungeons and Dragons game takes about six minutes uh, if you're doing uh, Savage Worlds. So that's me. And uh, I'll do Savage, I've done Savage Worlds Star Wars and um, medieval, you know, D&D type stuff. Right now, I've got a steampunk Justice League of America campaign that I'm having a ball doing with, with uh, the folks in my area. So it's good. Do you, do you do most of that in person locally or are you um, using um, like some sort of online system? You know, I, I have to admit, I'm a except for one group that I still am connected to in the Pacific Northwest, a group of dear friends who are very good and a lot of fun to game with. They're the only ones I do online gaming with now. I did GM an online game system for a while during the pandemic for a friend who kind of wanted to get his kids together. And that was fun. But for me, I'm just the kind of person... I love the immediacy of everybody around. We're rolling dice. You can hear them clatter on the table, and uh, people make a joke, and you you could actually have the person right at your elbow laughing. That's just me, you know. I just I enjoy the in-person gaming style more, much more so than the uh, than the Zoom call style. But that's just me. Do you use the minis and such when you play at your table, or is it uh, theater of the mind? Oh yeah, I love minis. I've actually graduated recently from. Uh, I love painting them. <clears throat> And uh, I graduated recently from scrolling through and looking for the perfect mini to somebody introduced me to a couple of sites, Hero Forge and Eldritch Foundry, where you can design your own miniatures and then you download them. And one of my very, very generous children 
who uh, gave me a um, small, compact 3D printer. So uh, I've got it printing out some pillars right now for a game I'm running on Saturday for the scenery. So yeah, it's been good. It's been good. Cool. I like it. I like it. We uh, we've actually talked about doing a, a small side podcast just about gaming stuff. Oh, cool. Because I came to it late in life <clears throat> in a Navy town. I was busy with girls and sports, and I didn't really have any. Like I didn't know anybody playing D and D. You heard about it, sure. And then. Um, you know, once I was old enough to look out more proactively, everyone was getting transferred here and there. So it's just hard to get a table together. So <clears throat> I didn't start playing until I think late 20 teens. Oh, okay. Not too bad. So 2016, 2017, I think. So I'm, I'm still learning. Yeah. I started when I was about 12 or 13 because you're talking about the novel versus the book versus the movie. Rather. I read in the novelized version of ET. I didn't realize in the movie they were playing Dungeons and Dragons, but they, get into more detail in the novelized version of E.T. I asked my mom for a set. It was 1983. I was making new friends. And then the fabled satanic panic hit. And there were about two dozen murders of people nationwide with nothing connecting them except Dungeons and Dragons. So that hobby had to go kind of go out the window until I got to college. But uh, no, I totally get it when you have to wait until you're in your 20s to start like that. I didn't really get into miniatures or miniature. Uh, I also do uh, miniature wargaming, but I didn't start doing that with my sons until about my mid thirties. So, you know, yeah, it, it's sometimes better to get, get into it later. In life. Yeah. I got lucky cause I started through the writing. So I did a game, a few games with, uh, with my local writing group oh, cool. uh, that didn't pan out mostly other reasons. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't play again. That was 2016. I didn't play again until I think 2019. 2018 or 19 mm -hmm. um, when the old school sci-fi writers playing old school D and D started. And I had the privilege of, of playing several games with James Ward, who was cool. one of the, the TSR OGs. So it was yeah. kind of cool to, yeah. to hear the stories from, from when it was original, even though I wasn't, I mean, I was alive, but I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of cool, but uh, I suppose we should get back on track or this is going to be a two hour episode. Sorry. I yacked too no, much. no, no, you're absolutely, this is what happens when I don't have a co-host to rein me in. So, <laughs> So we here at the Blasters and Blades love both the fantastical and the scientific, but what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Boy, that's a good question. Um, you know, I would say they've kind of both hit the same time, and here's why. Uh, my mom was a single parent for a good chunk of my growing up years until she met my dad, uh, the man I call my dad. You know, he's my stepfather, but I call him my dad when I was, they got married when I was 13. But prior to that, a nice fellow was hitting on my mom, and he was a fantasy and science fiction fan. So he gave me my first science fiction anthology. It was a collection of uh, Isaac Asimov's Analog. And I still remember the first story in there. It was called Gift of a Useless Man and uh, by Alan Dean Foster. So that got me into science fiction. But he also gave me my real kind of introduction to the fantasy world, which was a solitaire game. I had no idea of micro games or anything like that. It was a solitaire game in a little box about yay big by yay big called barbarian prince and you moved a little figurine around the map and uh you had a little booklet that showed you all these pre-programmed sequences and what are your decisions roll the dice flip to this page so i kind of got both of them at the same time i mean i was seven years old when star wars came out and i kind of put that in both science fiction and fantasy i mean realistically <laughs> You know, you've got one kid, you know, one 20 year old kid with a glowing sword. He goes up against 100 guys with blasters and, you know, he's going to win. That's pure fantasy to me. But, uh, 
yeah, I love them both. You know, they've both got aspects that are intriguing to me. Now, the science fiction, science fiction, either the soft or the hard, uh, and fantasy, either high or quote unquote low, where it's a whole lot of mishmash. I liked it all, you know, from the time I was about 12 years on. Okay. So that's, a, that's a thorough answer. Hope that works. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good answer. Um, so, okay. Do you remember what your first memory of engaging in, in speculative fiction was? Was it games, uh, movies, books? Like, how did you discover the umbrella that is that includes fantasy and sci-fi? Oh, well, probably when I read that first story I told you about, Gift of a Useless Man by Alan Dean Foster. And again, up until I was 12, most of the stuff I'd read were kind of, you know, teen sleuth type books, you know, group of little kids all get together and solve a mystery, kind of like Scooby-Doo. Or if you're old enough to remember a Saturday morning TV show called The Red Hand Gang or another one called The Bloodhound Gang, that's pretty much the main stuff that was available to kids in my age group at that time. But, uh, you know, when I ended up reading Gift of a Useless Man, it was the first, you know, I, I said in a different interview, most of us remember our first kiss, our first car, our first job. Uh, I, for me, I remember that story almost word for word to this day, because it's a, it was about a fellow who was a low level criminal, got thrown from his spaceship in a crash. He's paralyzed. He's expecting to starve to death and die, but slowly a little group of telepathic insects end up befriending him. And uh, through basically everything from, you know, the, 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 the dead skin from his scalp to the wastes from his body, he basically, and he teaches these guys all he knows, which isn't much, about farming and civilization and all that. And so this useless man ends up being the pivotal civilization point of cultural relevance for these millions upon millions of intelligent insect-like people. <clears throat> and so to me, I, I won't say it blew my mind, but I remembered just kind of going through the next day. I didn't really understand why I felt almost intoxicated reading this, but it's because this was a kind of story I had never been exposed to before. And it was at a level of complexity with themes I had never been exposed to before. And like most people, when they encounter something that has that kind of effect on them, you want more. more. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what I started looking for. Uh, unfortunately, you know, again, I had members of my family whose attitude was, you know, well, this kind of, uh, this kind of writing opposes our values. And, you know, they weren't wrong that a lot of the authors did during that time period oppose the values that uh, my folks were probably trying to instill in me. I'm happy to say that if that was the case, well, I still got the values I do, but, uh, I ended up reading a fair bit of science fiction. I watched Star Trek II: the wrath of Khan. When I went on a ski trip with the Royal Canadian Air Cadets, I'm not really military, but you know, hey, it, it was it was good for me. So I basically just kind of you know did catch as catch can. And later on, when more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? More deep uh, types of science fiction came out. Blade Runner, you know, that was a film I found myself just watching again and again on videotape when I could, because. It, I would a new little theme would pop up again and again. When ET came out, when I was uh, just about to turn thirteen, again all these images uh, were just total revelations to me. So yeah, 
that's that's kind of I would say the point when uh, when I read that that first book, that first story by Alan Dean Foster, that uh, it kind of was the gateway for me. And the nice thing was, I'm a teacher by trade. When I got to teach my middle schoolers uh, Gulliver's Travels, and we did the th you know the story of Lilliput, where Gulliver is tied up by all these tiny little beings, and they are completely unwise and don't listen to them. Well, they don't listen to Gulliver, rather. Well, I was able to take the last five minutes of every class period and read them a little bit more of the story of Gift of a Useless Man, and they were enthralled by it. And I found Alan Dean Foster's email and just quick told him, you know, this is what your story meant to me, and now I'm sharing it with my students. And he popped an answer back to me within about 10 minutes saying, that's thank you so much, you know, because that means more to me than a whole uh, box full of plastic awards. <laughs> so, yeah, that kind of brought things full circle. I actually got to talk to the author. I got to talk to the guy who made the story that pointed me in a really enthralling direction. So that was neat for me. <laughs> so what is it about speculative fiction that you love so much? Wow. Um, well, I, as I said, I'm a teacher, and I'm the teacher who likes to tell stories to get a point across. And for speculative fiction, if you want to teach a lesson, you know, you can do it so much easier by telling an enthralling story than by simply saying uh, you should defer gratification to do something great. Okay. Well, hey, we all know the story of the three little pigs when we were growing up. And that's what that story is basically about. Great way to teach the lesson. Speculative fiction, when it's done <clears throat> well. It taps into things, themes that are kind of universal to all of us. The, the hero's journey. You, know, you start up here in your normal life. You're called out of it. You end up going on a journey. You get to your low point and you fight your way to the upper bit. You've got friends to help you and all that. These are things that all people can identify with regardless of their culture, their time period, uh, whatever. Man, woman, American, Lower Slobovia, whatever. And that's what I love about speculative fiction when it's done well. It may have a message, but first and foremost, it tells a great story, the kind of story that a person from any particular walk of life could really enjoy. That's what I like, the universality of it and its ability to, to teach something while telling, while enjoying, while causing enjoyment, while enthralling the people who are hearing it. Hope that doesn't sound too pretentious, but that's just me. <laughs> no, I mean, the good thing about speculative fiction um, and sometimes fantasy is you can explore those ideas in a way that's not offensive for anybody and just think about them and the implications. Right. You know, and if you have this technology, okay, well then, then what? So I'm like, yeah, I get that. So how did your love of speculative fiction transition into you deciding to tell your own stories? Wow. That's a good one. Um, okay. I know, like I said, I've been running off the mouth myself a bit, so, but I'll try and keep this one quick. When I was teaching, uh, I was teaching a middle school class that I really enjoyed, you know, and I knew I was going to actually enjoy a class when the other teachers in my school said, oh, no, you've got them. Okay, well, you know, them usually means that they're right for somebody who can actually uh, get stuff across in a fun way to them. And that's that's what I've always been all about. And when I got this group's first batch of book reports, it was interesting to me because uh, a lot of them. A lot of these book reports, the plots of their novels, um, again, I'll admit I liked ones that were offbeat, but these just seemed almost creepy in some ways. I won't go into a whole lot of detail. But uh, 
the plots seem to have the wrong, you know, basically just reprehensible individuals in many cases as the protagonists. And it almost seemed to glorify more actions that even a, a person who isn't religious would see as immoral or just plain wrong to do. And it was shown as cool, kind of like, you know, kind of like when Beavis and Butthead, they say fire is cool. You know, you remember that kind of thing. We laughed. <laughs> yeah, we laughed. But we laugh because we know these guys were awful and we know that we would never do something like that. We, we, we understood that. These young people, I could see that their choices of reading were actually really affecting how they saw the world and how they were interacting with each other. Uh, also, people who were of a more uh, ethical bent in a lot of the stories I was seeing, they were portrayed almost as the villains, if anything. Uh, their defenses of their belief systems were always simplistic and easily knocked down by uh, the protagonists who, again, not good people, not nice people, not anybody you'd really want to hang out with, certainly no one you'd trust with your money or your daughter. And uh, so I just, I thought, you know, I could do better than this. I've got stories in my head that are better than this. When my, when my radio broke in my car and I couldn't afford to fix it, I found myself just doing all kinds of stories as I was going in the car back and forth, like I used to do when I walked to school back and forth when I was a kid. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but, you know, back in my day. You know. I actually, I mean, we had kids that walked to school. I just always lived farther away. Oh, okay. Okay. So you, you, you took the bus. That's fine. No, I joke and say back in my day, we walked to school, we went home for lunch, and our video game systems had one button and one joystick, and we liked it. So there. <laughs> so we didn't have the uh, walk home for lunch as an option, okay. and uh, people did walk. We were the probably the last of the latchkey generation. Yeah, there you go. You come there home to an empty house for your parents for at work. Yeah, so I get it. That was me. That was me. So I started looking, and I realized, you know, wouldn't it be cool? You know, what what would I like these guys to read more of? And at the time, uh, there was an author who had been kind of pushed out of the canon uh, because he was not. Uh, part of the cultural ethos, but he actually predicted things like uh, the rise of eugenics, the role of the Germans, you know, angry people, uh, what they were going to be doing. He was saying this at the turn of the century. His name was Gilbert Keith Chesterton, or just G.K. Chesterton for short. Very moral individual, um, atheist to begin with, ended up converting to general Christianity, and towards the end of his life uh, to Roman Catholicism, but he wrote a hundred novels and about published a thousand poems. And he was just an incredible, incredible writer, great at turn of the phrase, weighed like about 350 pounds when he was an adult, but he was like, I don't know, six foot five and 50 pounds when he was a kid. It was kind of crazy just how he changed it over time. But the really weird part for me was he was best friends with guys like H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw, men who were his complete opposites in terms of, I'm just going to take my glasses off here for a second because it, it looks like my eyes are shining back at me all the time. Guys were the complete opposite of Mr. Chesterton in terms of moral, theological, or ethical outlooks. And he maintained warm friendships with these guys, even though they were the complete opposite of one another. And that was a lot like a number of the friendships I had in high school as well, I'm happy to say. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you had a story about a teenaged G.K. Chesterton. And he, one of his characters in his novels was a mystery-solving priest. Put him in as the mentor. Bring in a teenaged H.G. Wells. And now they've got to try and fight 
the tripods as they land from Mars. Um, I was worried at first that maybe I might get sued because obviously these characters aren't mine, but happiness, it turns out that the copyright runs out in America after 100 years. So I was safe, but uh, still it was a, a wonderful piece to write. And then that book that I first started, we were snowed in like we are tonight in Texas where I live now, but we were snowed in in Washington uh, state for about a week. And I sat down and I started writing the book and uh, it took about, it took about five years from the time I first sat down on my old beat up laptop to when I actually held the cover in my hands and held the book with it, with everything in my hands. But, uh, it's been totally worth it. I had a great time with it. And uh, yeah, I've, it's been it's been a good journey so far. And I've got the sequel out, The uh, Emperor of North America, and I'm down to the final edits of the third book in the series called Where the Where the Red Sands Fly. So yeah, that's where that came from. Okay. Yeah. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the sort of stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that you feel like shaped you as a storyteller? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, big time. Um, I didn't really realize this. This is kind of funny. When you're writing, sometimes uh, you don't really realize that your own stuff is getting in there. You just know that this sounds cool right now, and this turns my crank while I'm saying it. When you go back and you look over your first draft, you kind of realize, you know, wow, you know, this is where this came from. Uh, short version, again, my mom was a single parent uh, from the time I was seven until I was 13. Uh, we lived in a section of Toronto called Little Italy. And uh, I, I, you can imagine what that would have been like if your last name was McNichol. Uh, there was a <laughs> gag in the class, you know. I heard one fellow say, yeah, you know, if your name did not end in a vowel in our neighborhood, you were at a serious social disadvantage. Um, I did a little stand-up on the side out here, you know, and I just said, yeah, it was always fun when they called the roll in the morning, you know. Uh, Luigi Abali, uh, Nick Ruggiero, you know. Sierra Alfonso, John McNichol. <laughs> so I got bullied. I got beaten up a fair bit. In Toronto, a non-Italian European like me, they're called manjakex and you know cake eaters. They don't eat meat. They eat fluffy cake. So I got bullied a fair bit. And I think that may be one reason why Chesterton, one of the things he really brought attention to, a lot of us think that this whole master race thing started with Adolf Hitler. It actually didn't. It started 30, 40 years earlier, and everybody in the intelligentsia, America, Germany, England, they had all bought into it. I mean, where we were in Portland, there's pictures of families in the 1930s getting blue ribbons because they are superior families and they're getting superior genes. Just crazy stuff like that. Well, really, you know, when I took a look at it, I realized essentially this is glorified bullying. I mean, this is one group of people saying we are superior, and because we are, we have certain rights and liberties over you, who are less than who we see as less than us. And so that formed um, a central theme in the story. Not only eugenics, but uh, at one point, Gilbert gets beaten up by a group of thugs, and you know, folks who have actually been on the receiving end of that kind of treatment say, "Yeah, that figures. That was me." And Herbert Wells in the story. He is totally on board with the eugenics uh, mantra and all of its aspects until he realizes that the Martians have landed and now they're the superior group on the planet. And do you really think that the law of the jungle looks so good when you're not one of the lions? So, yeah, 
<clears throat> the, the thing that comes from, go ahead. No, that's, that was basically, that was just one example, you know, of stuff. And one other bit, I guess, in real life, <clears throat> especially when I was in the Pacific Northwest, there are exceptions to every rule, but for the most part, I found that the folks who actually, you know, we didn't call it woke in the 90s, but I saw the precursors to folks who would today be, you know, kind of the woke joker, whatever they're calling them this week, uh, culture, where there would be, in the name of tolerance and compassion, they would show absolutely zero tolerance for any viewpoint that wasn't an exact lockstep for their own. And they would be vicious and cruel and sometimes violent to people who they thought weren't as compassionate as they were. So again, I put that in there as well. You know, Gilbert has to deal with folks who are like that. And I'm hoping, you know, that uh, if the sales of the book were during the uh, 2000s were any <clears throat> folks who basically, yeah, that message resonated with them too. So happy about that. The, the interesting thing that stuck out to me, I don't know if you ever watched the Mighty Ducks that came out in the 90s. I was in an age where I was watching it as a kid. Sure. And they called the the kid, one of the kids called the other kid Cake Eater as an insult. And I didn't know where that came from. Yeah. And now you're talking about that as an insult where you're at. Yep. So I thought that was a one-off for the movie. I didn't realize it was a thing. Oh, no. It's 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 still there to my knowledge. Yeah. I've got a lot of friends who still live in Toronto. That is still a thing in the, in the Italian-Canadian community. It's interesting. <laughs> So transitioning away from the writing side, or, uh, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So have you gotten any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your stuff yet? Oh, well, you know, the first edition, let me see. I think I showed this to you earlier. The first edition of the sequel, I know we're not really focusing on it, but this was the first edition to the sequel uh, to the Tripods Attack. That was a piece of fan art that ended up being the cover of the first edition, which is really cool. There's a different cover on now. We can look at that a different day. But uh, actually, I did have one young lady who went so far. You give, while you're talking, if you give me a second, I, I just had to look up how to do solo layout. I forgot. If you okay. throw show it now, they'll be able to, if you hold the, the, the cover up, they'll oh, be able to see it. You bet. So this was the original cover of the sequel, The Emperor of North America. And like I said, okay. I, I don't encourage people to buy this version because – a lot of editing pieces slipped through with the publisher I had at the time. Okay. Very nice people, but editing was a challenge. But this was a piece of fan art that ended up becoming uh, the cover to the book, the cover of the sequel. Um, where was I again? <laughs> oh, yeah, fan art. No, no. We have one other young lady who um, basically at a party, she realized, wait a second. Oh, you're that John McNichol? My daughter wants to talk to you. Oh, okay, sure. And daughter was about 13 years old. And she said, you know, can I show, I carry these around because I'm making these now. She had made a number of laminated bookmarks uh, with fan art from the characters from the Emperor of North America and from the Tripods Attack. So I was just like, this is cool. This is very, very cool. They're making bookmarks. I'm making progress. This is awesome. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, has anyone asked for your autograph? Uh, yeah, that's been good when that's happened too. I've had people ask me for that when they realize, you know, I actually, I'm taking doctoral courses now over at the University of Dallas out here. And uh, the fellow sitting at my left one night, he's in his 20s, uh, he said, John McNichol, are you? I'm like, here it comes. Are you related to? And he named my daughter, who's also a, who's also a student there. Yeah, yeah, she's my kid. But then he all of a sudden said, 
are you the John McNichol who wrote? Yes, I did. And I ended up signing a book for him. So that was nice. But my absolute favorite was, um, again, when we still live in the Portland area, I, I'm, I love going to Barnes and Noble for about three hours at a stretch. I can just, whatever kind of week I've had, that'll totally relax me. And I actually uh, bumped into a young man who had pulled my book off the shelves and was flipping through it. And I said, could I see that for a second? Sure. I took up my pen and signed it and said, here you go. <laughs> and he was just like, and I, here's my wallet. Here's my ID. Yeah, this is my book. So you just made my day, buddy. And that was really nice. So it wasn't really solicited, but he was happy for it. But uh, the only time I kind of got sad from a book signing, uh, a wonderful young lady named Jennifer Fitz. She's a blogger and she's a published author now in her own right. Uh, she wants, I guess, She's one of those homeschooling moms who liked my book. I guess, you know, her son, finally she found something her son wanted to read. Um, and uh, she asked me, you know, to take a copy of one of my books. Would I sign it to, you know, about four kids at once? And she gave it to them as a uh, confirmation gift. Well, a couple of years later, I had some local folks who said, we'd like to do some of your books for a book club. Can you get us about five copies really quickly? And the fastest I could get were a bunch were a bunch on for them were a bunch of used copies on Amazon. They came in and the first one I looked at, I flipped open and it was a copy. It was a copy I'd signed to four people. They had given it to a used bookstore, I guess, or something. And it had gone halfway across the country to this thing where it had come back to me. I'm just like all right, all right, you know. Um, I tell myself they probably just enjoyed it enough that they gave it away at the end. Maybe they wanted to share the love, but whatever it was. That was kind of surprising to see my own signature staring back up at me like that. That is cool. Um, yeah, that's one of those things where paperbacks, you know, you only read it a couple times, and if you want to pass it on because you only have so much space. There you go. So it makes sense that if her kids outgrew it, that they would want to spread the love. That's what it is. Could be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and if she if she's a published author in her own right, we'll have to get her name if she's in speculative fiction community uh, after the show, and we'll see about inviting her on because we're always looking to diversify with people we've never heard of. Sounds good. Um, all right. So do you remember the very first time someone asked you for an autograph? Very first time was one of my students, actually. Um, and uh, uh, Dominic was his name, as I recall. Very, very, well, a very quiet young man. But I guess uh, he enjoyed my class enough that just a little bit after the book was published, you know, yes, I announced it, everybody cheered. But he was the first one to come up and he just handed it to me. And uh, I opened it up and I signed it for him. You know, he asked me to ask for my signature. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an incredibly gratifying moment when somebody likes your stuff enough that they want you to put your own personal stamp again on it, not just with the words, but with your signature. So that was fun. That was really, really cool for me. I wonder how that works in the era where like future authors who aren't being taught how to sign their name in cursive. Oh, I never thought of that. Or write any, yeah, they don't teach cursive anymore. So do they just print it? They might. No, be interesting. You know, I never thought of that. I will say this. I've actually got a picture of this still somewhere. But about a decade ago, I had two young men uh, who, yeah, they, they know how to do cursive. They had to in my school. But uh, I guess they both, both of their sisters were in the a local production of the Nutcracker Ballet, and their mom made them sit through it. Now, technically, I know that's not child abuse for a boy, but still. Uh, they it's it's actually, skirting the line, sir. It's skirting the line. It's skirting the line. <laughs> 
But I guess they were both so bored. What they did was they actually did their homework. Somehow they got the translation. One wrote their homework in ancient Elvish runes, and another wrote their homework in ancient Dwarven runes. And I took one look at those things, and I was just like, oh, dude, A, okay, just for the effort. I don't know if it's for real or not, but A, right there. I still have the picture of the both of them. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Did they make? I know he made the Elvish language. Yes. Uh, Tolkien did. Did he make one for the dwarves, or was that fans done afterwards? You know, it could be. You know, it, my guess is they just went on the internet and uh, found some translator or something like that. Here's the dwarf runes or something, and uh, they just answered their liter their questions. You know, their study questions for the book we were reading at the time. But uh, you know, hey, if they don't know cursive. Maybe they'll learn Elvish. Maybe they'll learn Dwarven. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Maybe, maybe. I know I was so excited the first time someone asked me for an autograph of one of my books. Yeah. I spelled my name wrong because I hardly ever use cursive. I was always faster printing. There and we go. so like I did the I doing the cursive, you know, the A and the N sort of run together. Yeah. So it looked like Hadley instead of Handley. And yeah. I had to buy it because he had sent me the copy. I had to go buy another one of my own books so I could <laughs> give him one signed property. I still have the one I miss I miss uh misspelled <laughs> around here somewhere and of course everyone that knows i was she's like oh of course the grunt's gonna spell his name wrong <laughs> but i have to say this too you said grunt when i was in the air cadets we made fun of the army cadets and we called them grunts but they called us pigeons so it all worked out just fine so <laughs> so have you uh ever spotted someone out in public reading one of your books uh, uh aside from maybe yeah. at that barnes and noble that Barnes and Noble is the only time I could think of where I actually saw somebody reading my books. Yes, because, uh, but um, I have gotten, I have gotten uh, feedback from folks. I've got a couple of fans who still like to talk to me now and again and email me, which is really really cool. Um, my personal, I won't say it's necessarily a favorite, but it's kind of infamous. I did get one letter which I still have the scan for, and every now and again I take a look at it for a chuckle. But this one person started off by saying your books are very well written and I'm glad you're bringing GK Chesterton to a new general. Okay. I'm waiting for the, but I'm waiting for, but, but there it is. But, <laughs> but it's too violent. You know, there's this scene you know, you've got, you've got blood sucking aliens and giant robots and things blowing up and people throwing up. I've got an extended vomiting sequence in my book at one point. So, you know, but, uh, and, but the, the, the killer for this person. And you know, this, this, I'm sure this homeschooling mom that uh, homeschooling is great. I mean, my wife did it for four years when it's not, it's like the little girl with the little curl in her forehead. When it's good, it's very, very good. But when it's bad, this poor mom, uh, she said, the big problem I had was Gilbert spends is 16 years old in your novel. And he spends a significant amount of time infatuated with a girl. It's like she's never met little boys. Uh, yeah. yeah. Ma'am, I don't know what your 16-year-old is like. Would you rather I had him fall in love with a puppy or something? I'm, I don't know. I just I remember myself at 16. That was me. Anyone will tell you that. But uh, so, yeah. Or, I have or 14 or, or younger. 14. Yeah. You know, <laughs> oh, girls. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're awful when you're 10. And, oh, my. I'm 13 now. That, but in any case, you know. So, you get all kinds. I'm sure you're aware of this as a published author. You know, it kind of surprises you some of the people who like your books, even if they don't necessarily share your values, they can appreciate yeah. what you're doing. So that's always a nice thing. And the funny thing is, we used to do it on when we were sci-fi shenanigans. We used to do a segment where we analyze the reviews, and one of the we stopped doing it because it, it 
it either it just didn't it didn't feel right and it just wasn't received as well one of the trends i noticed is part of that process though spending two years studying reviews extensively you'll have the same issue yep. too much yep. violence yep. it's both a five star and a one star <laughs> like I, I had somebody write a one star for one of my books that said it was like a 12 year old with adhd wrote gun porn i'm like can i use that in my ad copy oh yeah because because for some people, what is an insult to them actually is a selling point to another segment of your audience, really. That would be great. I've learned the best way to analyze reviews if you're looking as a consumer, because obviously I still read. I go to the one stars and see what they complain about. And generally, yep. that'll sell me the book. <laughs> Don't go out and one star my books, people, or his. Like We're perfectly happy with the five stars. I'm just saying, sometimes what people don't like might be the thing we like. Well, you know, um, for me, the best part, because I remember, I, I will, you probably can identify this too. When my book first hit Amazon, when I got my first one star review, I mean, I felt like somebody just ripped out my heart and stomped that sucker flat. It was, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Now, now I laugh at them, like you say, but the best, uh, I got a one star review a while ago and uh, someone else jumped in and said, you're an idiot. And they, I, basically these two folks are duking it out over my book and i'm just kind of like you know what get the popcorn i'm not having fun watching this yeah you know maybe this is what they like actually had a they had a few authors get themselves in trouble replying to comments at a certain oh. point in time uh well just because they were being rude to their customers right oh yeah uh, at a certain there's just no win it's just like oh i'm sorry you didn't enjoy the book i hope you find something more to your liking and you move on you uh go. but at a certain point in time amazon removed the uh the ability to comment on the comments oh <laughs> they must have seen where that was going <laughs> so now you can vote it helpful and that is it you used to be able to also downvote it you can't do that anymore either you can just mark them as helpful oh you know. so it's fun for me. You know, like I said, I'm happy if somebody else likes the books. The only thing that I wish we could do is, you know, if I have, I've switched publishers over time and I wish I could take all the wonderful reviews I got from the first edition of tripods and move it over to the second edition. You know, I don't know, haven't able to find anybody to help me do that yet, but I'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> if it keeps the same ISBN and you're uploading it as a new version, you should be able to, I just don't know how you got to go into KDP and that's really boring talk. So we yeah, can talk we'll off air that. about that. Another day. <laughs> that's, fine. that's fine. So uh, finally, what is the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? That's obviously family friendly. Okay, family friendly. Um, I think it would probably be once again that mom who was upset that uh, my main character had a crush uh, on the uh, novel. But actually, one thing that I didn't mention earlier that I thought you might appreciate when I was writing this book. I actually, you know, if I had a few minutes at the end of class when I was teaching, I'd read a chapter to my class. I'd say a friend of mine is writing a book. Would you guys like to, um, would you guys like to, uh, you know, basically critique it? They said, yes. And the kids liked it, but I had one young man named Robbie who basically slagged it every time. Okay, welcome to America. You can have your opinion. That's great. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. But he went so far as to say, I will laugh if this ever gets published. Okay. And it got published. So I made a point of giving him his own copy, but I wrote at the bottom, hello, Robbie, start laughing, Mr. McNichol. And, uh, you know, he laughed and, you know, we, we, it was a bit of a good joke. It wasn't like any, there wasn't any animosity or anything like that, but that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun at that moment. I really enjoyed that. Thing. I mean, not every book's for everybody. That's like, you know, one of the things we say at the end is that's the right review. Reviews help the right reader find the right book. Yes. You know, 
Um, but uh, right now we're going to pause for a moment. Since in the introduction you told us about your your body of work, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. And I'm going to play that commercial interlude. Across a thousand battlefields and a million wars, there is always a question. What do you do when all the chips are on the table? Do you run? Try to find salvation in the arms of an easy peace? Or do you stand and fight and send your enemies into whatever hole they crawled out of? On Deadly Ground, a heroic Last Stand anthology has ten stories addressing that question. Each character faces the impossible in different ways, but all will be tested before the day is done. Can they earn a heroic victory amongst the endless eternity of space, or are they doomed to fall into obscurity? All right. Thank you for sticking with that uh, commercial interlude. We appreciate it. Uh, if you haven't read that anthology, it's full of amazing stories. I know because I, I wrote and helped edit all of them. Or no, I didn't write all of them. I, I published the book and helped you know pick all the stories. So uh, and while all of your your books that you talked about sounded fascinating, all of your your projects uh, with creative endeavors, um, can we we want to talk about the tripod attacks, which is book one in the Young Chesterton Chronicles? Yes, so what was the premise for this universe? Obviously, you knew who Chesterton was. Mm -hmm. um, but what made you decide to take that and turn it into the story as we know it today? Well, again, speculative fiction. The best speculative fiction for me <clears throat> asks that question, what if? What if this had gone just a little bit differently? In my world, you know, I've learned to be fascinated, especially not as much as before, but at one point I was totally fascinated with the, uh, the genre of steampunk. You know, how it's this elegant notion of all the conveniences we have with electronics instead come through steam. And what would have happened, the first computer actually wasn't IBM. The first computer was by a fellow named Mr. Babbage over a century before. And what would have happened if he had actually completed his computer, his difference engine, he called it. And so other authors you know, had similar speculations. Instead of hackers tapping away the keyboard, you have clackers who will try to program with punch cards. Uh, instead of the internet, where information shoots along wires with electronics, you have a vast system of pneumatic pipes where uh, messages are fired off and uh, various uh, individuals are able to pull strings and get that information before it gets to where it's supposed to go. And so I basically created a steampunk universe uh, where the computer uh, revolution came a century early, but it's based on steam rather than on electronics. And what would have happened if you had a G.K. Chesterton type fellow who is 16 years old, who is in the middle of this world, and suddenly everything starts to go very, very crazy. And that's that's the uh, system I've got in place. That's the that's the premise of the story, and that's the world I built. And uh, I had a great time with it. I really did. It was a lot, a lot of fun. And uh, I'm glad to say that I've had enough people saying it is, too, that there's a sequel. And uh, finally, it's taken about 10 years. We've had one of those Decades where you know had one family thing after another, one challenge after another. Um, it'll do it to you. Yeah. Well, not only kids. I mean, I, I just about kicked myself. I had was doing what I thought were the final edits. Had my laptop with me. I was literally on the last page when a little notice popped up. Hey, if you push this button, I can uh, wipe clean and save about ten gigabytes of memory on your laptop. Do you want me to do that? Oh. Okay, and 
Ooh. Yeah. Now, of course, I'd be, I'd be. Yeah. That went, the edited copy went, the backup of the edited copy went, and I literally had to start from the beginning. And uh, there were other issues that cropped up too. I mean, that was just one of the things. But so this far. This is why you start off site. I learned that the hard way yeah. in college, luckily. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I'm still a bit of a bitesophobe. I mean, I'm, up until earlier this year, I still had a flip phone. I mean, I liked my flip phone, but it finally got I did too, but when I got a new phone, they forced us to do the upgrade to the to the smartphones because they yep. charge you more to get the, the lower tech version. Yep, that's it. So in any case, I, I basically, like you say, I'm off-site now, I'm in the cloud, but I'm down to about the last 100, 150 pages of the final edits. And hopefully, Gilbert, you know, he goes to, in the tripods attack, he fights the bad guys in, in England yeah, on the Emperor of North America. He goes and basically fights steampunk cowboys in America. And then in the third book, he's on Mars itself. And so that's where I've got him, and that's where I'm going to get him out of, hopefully. But uh, we're, that's that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> so steampunk as a genre is kind of known for the aesthetics more than anything else. So how loose or tight did you play to the sort of the gearhead steampunk aesthetic that you see people dress up for at cons? Well, the thing is, you know, you can do something visually with a costume that would be way more difficult to do writing about it. If I'm going to have a guy with a mechanical arm, I'm going to have to explain, however briefly, how that mechanical arm is actually working and accepting impulses from his brain and so forth. And so, um, Essentially, you just kind of look at what was available then and see just how far you can believably tweak it. So at one point, for example, um, rather than having the Air Force go after these guys well, I to try and save the world, I have a bunch of men in Da Vinci flying machines, if you've ever seen those. They're kind of like the harnesses that yeah. on their backs and they've got the handles and such. You bring pieces like those in or where we might normally have, say, an aircraft carrier um, with all of the base and the, you know, you know, the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all those other folks are doing their thing. Instead, you have a floating sky harbor with a couple of Zeppelins and a very large platform. So that's basically how I like to do the steampunk aesthetic. If you're going to have something technological, you've got to be able to explain very briefly, like within a sentence or two, how something works, why it works. And the other trick is it should be there for a reason. You know, there's an old adage, if you've got a gun on the stage, on the table of a play in act one, it's got to go off by act three. So if you've got all these cute little buzz whizzes and gadgets and things like that, if they don't actually pertain to the story or move the story forward in some way, you're wasting your time, you're wasting the reader's time. They eventually are going to get bored. So I have to stick to gadgets and things that will actually be relevant to the story itself. So that's always, that's a bit of a challenge when you're just like, oh, I'm going to put in a steampunk cat. No, it's, can't really do anything with it. It doesn't actually make anything happen. But maybe in the sequel, you just kind of push those aside. So Chekhov's gun got you, huh? That's it. Chekhov, that's it. Yes, thank you. I missed that part. <laughs> so before we dig in too much into the story itself, um, we are going to take a moment where I'm going to show you the cover and you can tell me the story behind this art. Sure. Uh, I'm going to zoom in so the, the audience can see sort of the art, but, but how did you come up with this art? Well, this isn't my work. This was commissioned 
by a, a very, very good artist named Lawrence Klemecki. He is, uh, he is a Catholic deacon. You know, I, I laugh when I hear people suggest that uh, religion somehow stifles your creativity because a lot of the most creative people I know have very, very active faith lives. And uh, so in this particular piece, there is a, an extended sequence on a train where Gilbert has to try and stop it from crashing. You can see the tripod in the background. Um, and yes, the meteors you know, that are the great alien cylinders, they that's in the background in the form of a comet. But the four characters up front, uh, I actually ended up uh, finding pictures of Chesterton and H.G. Wells when they were 16 years old and got those to the artist. Uh, Father, Mr. Ch the real life Chesterton, he did look like that when at one point. Somebody actually said, John, he looks like you when you were 16 years old. Okay, that's nice. My hair was a little bit longer and wavier then, but okay, I'll accept it. Yeah, whatever. Um, but the fellow with the wide-brimmed hat is uh, based upon Chesterton's real life, well, not real life, but uh, the, a character that the real Chesterton uh, wrote extensively about, uh, a mystery-solving priest named Father Brown. So it looks like he's floating. If you look, that's actually his foot. He's running from these tripods as well. And in the background, you have a shadowy figure called the Doctor, no relation to the Time Lord. I want to make that very, very clear. He's somebody else, but uh, I leave it to the other folks. Another thing that's really fun about steampunk is you can put lots of characters and references, both real and imagined. And uh, at least uh, a, a couple of moms have told me it's been fun for their children because they'll immediately now run to the internet and see if there's, you know, who is this guy that Mr. McNichol mentioned? So I'm able to put that in as well. And the real life GK Chesterton had a lot of really neat quotes. Um, if you want to talk about the story itself, uh, for example, one of his most famous ones was, you know, any dead thing can go with the flow. Any dead thing can go with the current. It takes something alive to, to fight it upstream. And at one point, I've got Gilbert. He's in the sewers trying to escape the bad aliens kind of a thing. And he's debating, should I just let it all go? Should I just give up? And he sees a dead fish floating by and realizes a dead thing goes with the flow. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight this current, you know, don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm going to fight it. And so that's kind of the aesthetic on that. Also, um, the since you've got the Martians and the green, you know, basically the front cover has got a kind of a green motif to it. Then the second book, which hopefully we'll be able to talk about another time, uh, he's in a kind of a desert environment for a lot. So it's got a more of a bright orange type of uh, overlapping color. And of course, the third book's probably going to be red because, hey, Mars. But that's basically where all that stuff came from. And at one point, um, what Catholics call a holy card, it's a picture uh, of a saint. A saint, for those who don't know, in uh, you know Catholic Christianity, it's kind of like the Hall of Fame of people who were uh, basically were really, really holy, did good things. And St. Michael the Archangel is one of them. Uh, and uh, an actual little holy card becomes very, very important as a plot point. I don't want to give too much away because, hey, I want people to buy the book. So there's that. <laughs> Absolutely. So moving on to the book itself, what would your 30-second elevator pitch be for the Young Chesterton Chronicles? Okay. And specifically uh, the tripod attacks. You bet. Well, it depends on who I'm talking to. But for most folks, I'd say this is a steampunk novel. It's aimed at the middle to high school level. The kids like it, but moms and dads like it too. And basically it takes a historical figure 
puts him in an alternate timeline universe where he has a bunch of incredible adventures. And as I've said before, you it's not necessary. Some folks will call it Christian fiction. I will say it is fiction. Yeah, there are Christians in it, but it's also got giant robots, things blowing up, people throwing up, blood-sucking aliens, uh, the whole bit. So I put all the things into the book that I would have wanted to see in a book I read at that age. That works for me. Okay. So um, what do you think makes the tripod attacks in the series writ large special? Well, you know, there are a lot of steampunk novels out there. Okay? But uh, so far as I know, uh, I've actually been praised. You mentioned Declan Finn. He actually praised it because I bring up authors who really have been, in my opinion, uh, unfairly shunted to the side, like uh, G.K. Chesterton. And I'm able to give them a voice. And so H.G. Uh, Wells, yes, people know who he is, but there are a lot of aspects to his personality that people don't know that I put into the tripod's attack. By today's, uh, today's standards, he'd be a galloping racist, for example. And, uh, well, I show not only that he did have those opinions, but how he is able to surmount those. So it takes the hero's journey. It takes a hero who was a person in real life and yet it still puts them in a fantastic element that uh, a lot of folks like to. And for me, that's the fun of writing a big story. You get to write something people want to read about somebody who was a real person. And uh, you get to bring their story to thousands. It's a good feeling. <laughs> so you were ahead of your time. You beat Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I don't mind that nobody compares the two because apparently it was a terrible movie. Nobody saw it, so I won't really know. But yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> take take the real person, put him in a crazy situation. <laughs> Just like that. Okay, and this is the one thing. I'm going to try not to go on a soapbox because I'm a history major. You never win when you compare people um, from the past to modern sensibilities. You have to compare them against the standard of their time or you're doing everyone a disservice because I'm sure in 100 years we'll, we'll have stuff we believe that people are going to be like, oh, those insert insult here. Like, what were they, barbarians? I mean, that's just the nature of the evolution, like of humans and time. And so I, I try to judge them against the backdrop of, of the period they lived in. And, and it comes up a lot when you talk about our founding fathers and slavery issue. And it's just like, yeah, slavery is horrible, obviously. But if they wanted to do more than the law allowed, then that's the steps that led to where we are now. Like things just have to happen. They don't happen all at once. You've got to build up to it. So you kind of judge them against the, the period they're from. Great. And in that case, I don't think he was as bad as some people would say he was. Wells, I mean, um, I studied him some in college as well. So, sure. I mean, yes, we would sort of like the crazy uncle, right? We'd cringe now, but compared to his peers, oh, yeah, he wasn't so bad. Right. No, and I would agree with that. Um, but that's where Chesterton actually distinguished himself. He was pretty much the only member of the intelligentsia who would be where we are today and saying, no, eugenics, bad. Saying that people, certain races, better than, better than others, bad. And so he was the man who was truly ahead of his time. And that's one other reason why this, story, this, this particular series is different. I'm taking a fellow who really, if you looked at what he said, uh, you wouldn't be upset. He did, he actually flat out said, he actually wrote a book about it, eugenics and other evils. <laughs> and eugenics meant, you know, race, basically it was racism writ large. So yeah. if you really picked everything apart that he said, I'm sure you'd find something that's 
problematic by today's standards. But you know, that probably is for you and me, you know? That's because language evolved. So what was an acceptable term for a group of people back then and wasn't considered insulting or derogatory is now as you know, either we've become more aware of things or in some cases, meanings have just shifted. It happens over time. Um, and so like, I, I, I get the, the tendencies of people to want to, you know, wish everyone is as good as they could be by whatever we believe that to be now. But as a trained historian, I'm like, eh, that's a losing proposition. But again, I will not get on a soap. So you're going to be as bad as Declan. You're going to get me talking history and we're going to have a four-hour <laughs> podcast and Seska's going to get mad at me. It's going to be a thing. So instead, I will ask you, which tropes do you feel like the tripod attacks hits the best? Oh, well, for me, if I had to pick uh, one trope I've always liked, and you know, will probably it'll always be my favorite one to write about. It's uh, the person who basically has had a relatively normal life up to this point, and then something has completely shifted, and now our hero, who may have been a farm boy or something else, suddenly finds themselves in a completely new life situation, and they have to adapt all the tools and all the skills they've built up until now adapted to the new situation they're in. And they prevail because they don't give up and they don't stop learning and they don't stop adapting. So that's the kind of person I really like to write about. That's the kind of hero I like to write about the most. And that's the trope you're going to get in the tripods attack. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, if, and this is just off the wall, this wasn't even a prep one. If Chesterton was able to somehow come back to life and he knew you wrote a book, this series about him, how do you think, because you studied him pretty extensively. Sure. How do you think he'd, he'd react to this book series? Boy, I think he'd like it because the real life Chesterton, when he got to be an adult, he was about 350 pounds or so. He was a big, big man. In fact, somebody asked him during World War One, why aren't you out at the front? He turned sideways and he said, Madam, you can see I am. You know, he's out at the front. Um, but I think he would love to see himself put as a hero in a series of books. I will have to say that when this particular series first came out, a number of the older members of the American Chesterton Society apparently did not appreciate it. Um, I had one person go so far as to say, well, person X, who is a big wig, and I didn't know their name, but person X said, I want this guy's head on a pole outside my office. So yay, I got somebody mad enough to say that. That was kind of cool. But uh, I think, just, to their credit, they did let both Tripods Attack and the Emperor of North America get reviewed in their magazine, Gilbert Magazine. So um, I don't know how true that was. We'll say that I think Chesterton himself, he loved adventure. And if you read his stuff, sometimes it just carries you away. Like it's reading it is like watching a swashbuckler do his thing on the mast of a ship. So him as an adventurer, blowing up giant robots and saving the pretty girl, I think he would have loved it. I think he'd, and hey, if, uh, you know, he's up in heaven right now, I'd like to think that he did look down and he got to see a copy over somebody's shoulder and he did like it. So there you go. Um, Yeah. And one of the things I don't understand, people asking him about the uh, the World War One stuff. Uh, yes, if he was born in seventy four, yes, and yes. World War One started for us in sixteen, I know <laughs> uh, that he'd have been too old to he be drafted. Have. He'd have been like forty two. I don't think they were drafting that old. Actually, 
uh, remember for the British, it started in 1914. And they were having people, uh, I think. So he'd been 40, okay. Yeah, he would have been 40. I think 41, if I'm not mistaken. I was just reading this, uh, a poem by Robert Service to my students this past week about signing up. And one fellow says, I'm under 41, so I'm going to war kind of thing. So technically he could have maybe made it, but I don't think he would have lasted too long. <laughs> so he was a contemporary then of Tolkien, right? Uh, yes, apparently so. Although I don't know that they actually interacted with each other. Uh, Tolkien actually did fight in World War I, as did C.S. Lewis. But I don't know that they actually interacted with one another. I'd have to yeah, Tolkien was at the Somme. Well, that was horrific. Tolkien was at the Somme. Actually, hang on. Um, what did happen, and I do have this, I, I do reference this with a couple of characters in the uh, Emperor of North America. I don't want to give too much away. But C.S. Lewis later on, uh, when he was wounded, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to look this up to get all the details right. But he found himself reading G.K. Chesterton. And Lewis, at the time, was an atheist. Lewis was the guy who ended up writing all the Narnia books. Yeah. And uh, Lewis basically said, I found chesterton to be an incredibly eminently reasonable writer apart from his christianity of course <laughs> i will say this when my emperor of north america one of the most fun things i did was i actually put lewis and tolkien as a couple of prepubescent boys on the same air on the same uh, airship as tolkien and lewis uh, as chesterton rather and Lewis recognizes Chesterton. You're Mr. Chesterton. Yes, I am. Now, please go away. Oh, no, I'm your biggest fan. And he just never leaves the poor guy alone. So I had a good time with that one. No one's beaten me up for the Lewis camp yet. So I'm happy on that score. Does he still have a camp? I don't know. I probably, I would imagine. Enough people still buy his books, but I don't, I don't think anybody is like as passionate about it as him or Tolkien, but who knows? <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, so what, we've talked about that this was... Um, the tropes, but what subgenre? Obviously, it's it's Christian science fiction based on you know your categorization on Amazon, and you said it was steampunk. Were there any other genres that you think it would fit? Maybe men's adventure fiction. Men's adventure, except that I do know I've got several very very ardent female fans as well, and uh, my absolute what apparently uh, seems to work really well. I've had some folks say, you know, let's not call it steampunk. That's kind of uh, passe now. Alternate history, apparently, is what I've had some folks refer to it as. So perhaps that makes that makes even a little more sense to me because it diverges from our history line when uh, Babbage ends up making his uh, making his steam engine kind of a thing, his difference engine. So that's basically where that comes from. I would, yeah, probably alternate history might be good, even though there aren't any actual tripods or men on Mars. But who knows? We'll see what happens. So when they get to Mars, are they going to meet any princesses? I wouldn't be adverse to that. I doubt it. <laughs> you know, one can always hope. It's funny you should ask that because I actually got asked to talk about my books at uh, Oricon, which is like the big science fiction convention in Oregon. And okay. I actually had three people dressed up as Star Wars figures say, do you believe in aliens? And I said, well, I keep an open mind about it. I mean, maybe. I, I think it's unlikely they've evolved exactly like us. You know, I think it's a possibility. And these folks, bear in mind, they're dressed like Star Wars figures. They said, well, the Bible doesn't mention aliens. Okay, well, you know what? The Bible doesn't mention New York City either, but it's still there. So, you know, I said a lot gentler, I like to think, than that. These folks walked out of the room. So, yeah, I, I, I 
I'm not sure exactly how you'd end up categorizing that, but as far as other tropes, again, I forget the exact question, but I'll go with alternate history. I'll go with all the other stuff. I'm good with it. <laughs> okay. So now let's talk about the story itself. What can you tell us about your main character? You've talked a little bit about Chesterton, the historic figure, and how that inspired the series, the young Chesterton, but what can you tell us about the young Chesterton as he's, as he's portrayed in the series? Well, okay, I could tell you a little bit, a little bit about the plot. Young Gilbert, uh, he doesn't really, uh, he's been raised. Now, the real Gilbert Chesterton, this is a part that many of uh, the real uh, fans of, G of the real G.K. Chesterton had issues with. The real G.K. Chesterton was very, very English, very, very British, often referenced British history. Uh, but my Gilbert, because the difference engine was created it threw a lot of things we take for granted today out of whack so gilbert instead is raised in uh the or on the plains of minnesota okay and uh he's he's basically a little house in the prairie kid doesn't quite fit in he's smarter than the other kids around him uh his parents are different dad likes to tool with a rifle that has about 15 different magnification scopes Mom is really, really good with knives. She can, you know, take one of dad's kills and gut it and dress it in about half the time that anyone else can. So mom and dad are different. Gilbert's different. They have a very nice house and no visible means of income. He doesn't question it. His parents die in a mysterious accident, and somehow he ends up getting ported over to England. Uh, he's supposed to take, actually, a ship from England to his next destination. But unfortunately, due to another set of circumstances, he doesn't manage to get on the HMS Titanic. Poor kid. So he ends up being an orphan on the streets of Dickensian, London. He takes a job not in a blacking factory or anything like that, but he has a talent for mathematics, numbers, and language. And so he ends up getting a job in a clacking factory. And he learns how to do all the little punch card pieces. That in itself ends up being very useful to him several times in the story. When he's getting beaten up, his friend, or his new friend, H.G. Wells, comes to his rescue, shows him a bit about how the world works. One of the more fun elements I had putting into this, how much time do we have, by the way? Just wanted, I didn't want to. Oh, we're good. That. I mean, we're running late, but we're just going to have a long episode. So, sounds good. One of the most fun uh, characters I had because he meets this girl. You, you talked about being 16 years old and 14. You know, you all know what it's like when suddenly a pretty girl walks by, your heart jumps into your throat, and oh my gosh, I absolutely have to marry this person. For Gilbert, it's a redheaded girl. And uh, she kind of drops in and out of his life. She, he sees her once in his boss's office when he's suddenly promoted to being a journalist from being a clacker. He sees her on this train that's about to basically jump the rails and only he can save them. And uh, the reason I put her in there as a character, this is one of the more interesting aspects about the real life G.K. Chesterton's work. Somebody noticed, if you read his books and his short stories, a red-headed girl jumps in and out. Sometimes she's just there for about three lines. Sometimes she bookends at the beginning, at the end, and sometimes she's there for the whole book. But Chesterton kept on putting a very clearly described red-headed girl as a character in almost all of his fiction for varying amounts of time and space. 
And uh, what was interesting was we never knew Chestertonians, people who are really into G.K. Chesterton, they were debating like crazy who was the redheaded girl. Well, we found out uh, back about the mid-90s, Chesterton had a very young secretary who helped him and his wife. She was 16 or so when he died. That secretary's nephew, all the way up in about the mid-90s, found her trunk and found Chesterton's first book, never published, called Basil Howe. And it detailed a young 19 or 20-year-old man, Chesterton's age at the time, who has an unrequited crush on the redheaded cousin of one of the members of his debating team. And so they figured out she was probably the redheaded girl. But in my story, I get to put her in as a character who just kind of jumps in and out of his life uh, and helps him out, makes trouble, helps him out again. And he finds out more about who she is by the end of the story. But I leave all the most tantalizing details out until later books. But that's a bit about Gilbert and that's a bit about the other characters. So hope that helps. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So what about secondary characters? Obviously, there's the redheaded girl. Yep. What about the other secretary, uh, secretary, other secondary characters? Which ones are your favorites and were most memorable? Well, I liked writing Herb Wells because, again, as I said, by our standards today, he would have been a galloping racist. Over time, see, most of us have that friend or that one or two friends where you were completely different. But you were still best buddies. And Chesterton mentions that again, you know, the crusader and the Saracen had something in common. You know, this one said God is one. This one said God is three, but they can still begin a very manly quarrelsome friendship. You know, I think is how he put it. And that's the kind of friendship that Gilbert has with Herb Wells. Herb, again, most of us have that friend, who, you know, they were best, they may have been our best buddy, but they kind of went in a wrong direction at one point. Herb does that, and Gilbert can't save him, and he realizes that. It's, you know, not what you may think, you know, when we usually say, he made poor decisions. It's other stuff instead. And uh, Herb basically ends up having to try and find redemption in his own way. But uh, so I enjoyed writing the character of Herb in that sense, because I could draw on people who were my own good good friends, and in some cases are still very good friends today uh, from my own high school years. I enjoyed writing the character of Father Brown because <clears throat> Chesterton writes him so clearly and so concisely. Um, you've got a real clear sense of what this man's personality was like. And he's blunt, but he's never cruel. Uh, so I enjoyed that. The character of the doctor, a little bit more slippery. Um, the doctor is a character, and he works for a group that calls itself the Special Branch. Many folks, oh, he works for MI5. No, 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 not that Special Branch. A very different group of people. Um, but, you know, all the secondary characters, I had to eliminate some of them, you know, in various drafts. And uh, believe it or not, one of, my, one of my favorite secondary characters, my editor said, no, you've got to kill this person off. Why? Because it's good for the story. I did, and he was right. You know, my editor, Todd, was a wonderful man and a, a living saint for putting up with me and all of my uh, typographical errors, no less. But, yeah, all of the, uh, those, are the, the, those are the three or four main secondary characters. And uh, what was fun, too, Gilbert, in the real-life Gilbert married a woman who was about three feet shorter than him in real life. Her name was Frances. I got to put her in as a character near the end of the tripod's attack. I have Gilbert meet Frances for the first time. 
But uh, again, that's when I got probably my my first kind of twitty um, anal retentive fan. Somebody shot me a thing. I liked your book, but you got Francis's eye color wrong on page 430. Really? Really? <laughs> You're going to bust me for that. Okay. All right. Whatever. But yeah, those are the main, those are the main uh, secondary characters, the redhead and Herb, Father Brown, and the doctor. So those are the main secondary folks that uh, Gilbert gets to work with. So what can you tell us about the bad guys that Chesterton has to face in this without spoilers, obviously? Okay. Well, bad guys, um, you have your standard group, you know, in many ways that are bent on world domination. But uh, heck, that's kind of an old trope. So what I ended up doing was researching just what kinds of groups considered themselves Illuminati or world girther type guys, what kinds of men were interested in doing that and basically trying to control and run things during that time period. And so, <clears throat> again, looking at the lives of about four, I picked about four or five guys. And if, again, you, history aficionados may be able to pick them out. I don't actually name them until the third book uh, at all. But uh, some of them are fictional, and some of them are based on real-life characters. But those are the ultimate guys who are pulling the strings of the world. And Gilbert doesn't even realize exactly what's going on. You know, uh, The way the doctor at one point puts it, most people, they're like worms living under the house of a king. And uh, Gilbert eventually realizes this is the king that's trying to take over the kingdom. And he has to do what he can and as best he can to overthrow that. So let's see how do, that goes. Do you, do you touch on the robber barons that would have been around at that time? Um, yeah. Potentially... Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, if you read it, you'll probably pick out a couple of them. If you're, if you, if you're a fan of that time period, um, that's what I did. You know, I kind of took uh, the, I, I don't want to sound pretentious here, but I kind of took, I looked at other storytellers who had written great stories in their own time. And what did they do? George Lucas immersed himself in all these mythologies. And so before I ever wrote the book or started writing the book, I just kind of immersed myself not only in steampunk uh, pieces and tropes, but also just in the people and even and the fiction, uh, the fictional characters of that time period. Who would have been, who, what people, fictional or real, would have been kind of in a round table, let's take over the world conspiracy that a guy like Gilbert would end up foiling without <laughs> without their knowledge initially. Okay. So as authors, we often do horrifically nasty things to our characters. Yep. So if G.K. Chesterton and H.G. Wells and company met you in a back alley and they knew who you were and you were the, the creator of their torment, how do you see that playing out? I think Chesterton would be most upset that I killed off his parents because in real life, uh, they were there and they supported him throughout most of his lifetime. But I killed them off when he was 16. You know, it's it's a trope you've got kind of have to do nowadays. Uh, you know, the the uh, the superhero has to be an orphan. We all know that. And H.G. Wells, I think he'd be kind of happy because uh, he had a long string of lady friends. And uh, what uh, I you know I think he'd be kind of liking the fact that. He's the one who kind of has to initiate with initiate Gilbert into that world. No, this is how you talk to a girl. No, you don't talk to philosophy to a girl. They're not interested in philosophy. And I can wait, just wait to hear, my girlfriend was good. 
that's not the kind of girl that, that Herb is interested in, you know, and so forth. So I don't think Herb would be too upset. Um, I will say this, what was really, really weird, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but I have Herb end up finally getting into a kind of a long-term dysfunctional, toxic relationship with a woman in the second book, the, uh, the sequel to Tripods. And I thought, well, who's the most evil woman from that time period? And I found her, found a bunch of quotes. Later on, after I'd written the book, I found out the real life H.G. Wells did have an affair with this woman that I put him with. And I was kind of <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it's like, you know, he, he cheated on his second wife with her and she cheated on her third husband with him. So, I mean, I was just kind of like, all right, okay, whatever, whatever. So, so given when uh, Chesterton was born, his parents would have been of age during the Civil War, or at least alive, yes. depending on their ages. In your version of history, like, because you said at some point in time, you, you changed history. Did the Civil War happen? Well, yes and no. Um, there were a couple of authors who suggested that the United States actually did not conclude their business with the Civil War, but just ended up fragmenting further. And so initially, the Americas are split into no fewer than five smaller countries. So uh, I also, yeah, that was also a good little piece I ended up doing because I have the character of John Carter pop up. And one of the things I always took issue with about John Carter was he never talked in his books, like a Virginia gentleman, you know, he talked like a British guy or like Doc Savage or, you know, like Conan sped forward a few hundred years, 2000 years. And so, yeah, there is a civil war, but people from the South refer to it as the war of Northern aggression, you know, or in some. I heard that growing up in Virginia. Yep. So, you know, um, some other folks, you know, suggested I, I try and put a modern spin on it. Okay. So uh, some folks say, you know, this is your, this is your right to choose a slave. You know, you're, you don't have the right to come down and tell me, Washington, what I'm going to do with my property. So some folks, yeah, the War of Northern Aggression was a, uh, a, a one that was often used. Slave wars is uh, the way some folks just euphemistically called it in the North. Um, I always bring that up when someone says, well, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. Yeah, yeah, it was. If you look at um, the South, its first vice president called slavery in his inaugural address a philosophic, scientific, moral good that everybody should be adhering to. So, okay, yeah, it was based on slavery. You know, I mean, we could debate that, but the... Uh, the well, I mean, the, go ahead. They would argue that it was about states' rights, but then you ask the next question, states' rights to do what? Oh, slavery. Yeah, so yeah. they're arguing a, a semantics. It's a distinction without a difference. Precisely. And again, history teacher and history major. So we both, I think we both have common ground on that. So yes, and that's, again, a fun piece. You know, what do you do, say, if Harry Turtledove, uh, who I had the good fortune to meet at a con a, a couple of years back. Nice. He wrote, yeah, he wrote a great piece. He saw my book. He's like, cool, thank you. And I don't think he ever read it, but that's okay. I gave him a copy of my book. But he wrote a piece exactly asking that question called uh, The Guns of the South. What happens if the oh, South, yeah. remember that? What happens if the South wins the Civil War because it suddenly gets a hold of about 10,000 AK-47s? Um, and so that's another question I ask, you know, well, the difference engine not only brings the computer revolution century early, what else does it help other people do? In this case, it helps the South win the Civil War. So 
the South had a superior military, but the North had the logistics, which is always goes back to prove like this, the angry staff officers talk about logistics wins wars. Yep. Uh, the, the issue would, you'd run into is some would argue that the Greeks had some form of computer with some of the technology. If you look at like the drawings that existed now, whether they were actually building that or it was just someone dreaming big on a piece of paper, that's up for debate. But they have found some things that they at least attempted to build in some of the dives. Right. So you could even right. get really weird like Da Vinci Code level with mm -hmm. that if you wanted to. Sure, sure. And what actually I had fun doing was when uh, somebody was trying to decipher because American history is kind of challenging to people who are in Europe. I mean, they don't necessarily understand a lot of the nuances. <coughs> Um, I had basically America fragment further. Well, after the South wins the Civil War, Texas breaks away. Hey, we can make our own country. And then California breaks away and then breaks further into Northern and Southern California. Because anybody There were plans for all of that. So Yeah. Everyone who's been to California knows those are pretty much two different places anyway, North and South. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, America is fragmented into five countries at the during this particular piece. So that's another big difference I had, and another fun thing to write about. Okay, so so how much of the technology that you were putting in there did you take from real life? Well, you know, I did so, take. Oh, go ahead. As I say, for instance, one of the things that uh, that changed the course of agriculture in the South was the cotton gin, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Um, with Eli Whitney, at one some would argue that at one point in time slavery would have faded out anyway because it became economically unfeasible. The cotton gin comes and reinvigorates things. If you're already taking alternative viewpoints, I mean, it wouldn't take much to turn the cotton gin into something steam powered and fitting a, a a steampunk aesthetic. So, I guess what I'm asking is, at what point did you make the change from the world as we knew it to the world you're writing? Is there a dividing line that's pretty clear? Um, I try to make that pretty clear at the very beginning. I mentioned Charles Babbage was an inventor in the early 1800s, and he claimed that he had plans for a machine he called a difference engine. It okay. really wasn't any more powerful in terms of its computing ability uh, than a four-function calculator would have today. But if it had actually been built, I think it would have filled about two or three classrooms in, in terms of all the pistons and steams and gauges that were uh, required. Now, Mr. Babbage never finished his machine. I think he worked on it 13 years and only finished one eighth of it, if I'm not mistaken. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, yeah, interestingly enough, in our modern age, somebody with a lot more spare time and cash than probably you or me actually did finish building the thing, and it does work. It did work, so yay for him. But in his case, when he built that particular computer, the first essential computer, that's the dividing line. That's where things start to switch. And so you have, you know, you have the electric light, you have um, triple decker trains that are running on these punch card codes uh, that can do so without a driver in some cases to a certain point. You've got your Vinci flyers. You've got your steam-powered um, networks of pipes that'll get information everywhere. You've got all kinds of things. You could even have, you know, I throw in, um, if you know H.G. Wells' lore, uh, Caverite is an element that a fellow discovers that's got anti-gravity properties. And that's where you get actually a floating city in the second book. But for me, the clearest dividing line is right when Babbage actually creates his machine. And that 
that's what changes everything and you know alters the timeline and gives me all kinds of liberty to write all kinds of fun adventures <laughs> sounds fun it's amazing to think about like the da vinci flying machine they've had people build from those schematics they yep. actually work with very yep. minimal tweaking mm -hmm. uh the mayan calendar uh, you know was accurate within you know fractional seconds cool. up until probably about 2000 like they were predicting astronomical phenomenon and they did it all without a calculator they did it in their noggins and that's just amazing to think about yep absolutely and and, uh, and because we don't know how they do it that's how we get oh it had to be aliens <laughs> <laughs> i'm not what's that meme i'm not saying it was aliens but i'm not aliens. not saying it either neither <laughs> <laughs> You know, you can toss it about and stuff like that. I just, I have a good time with my students and say, and you've got more brain power at your disposal, all the information literally from the time of humanity's beginning. And we use it to play League of Legends and get pictures of cats. Okay, sounds good. Let's keep going. <laughs> but oh well. You know. Yeah, the, the, we've learned a lot. So that's one of the things we've learned through history, you know, is at one point in time we studied the dates. Uh, and we memorize those. And then, you know, you start thinking about how things change and how much we know and don't know. We actually have uh, historical archaeology. What's the word? I can't remember the term for it. It's where they actually go and they live like the people would have to try to understand. Um, it's not. I've seen reality shows about that, but I didn't know there was an actual. Um, There's an actual name for it. Uh, you know, okay. LARPing comes to mind, but that's not it. Where they're actually living. It's not reenacting. But they're actually like living historians or there's a term for it. I can't remember. Oh, cool. It's been a long time since I got my master's degree in okay. colonial history. But like the you don't think about how certain you know minor things make a difference. So you study like Shiloh, for instance, and you see, well, the time of the battle, they should have been sunlight. But there wasn't because without daylight savings time, it wasn't actually this time. It was this yep. time. And suddenly, OK, well, now the morning mist makes sense. And so it's not just what's written. It's understanding the history in the larger context yep. that makes it come to life. I had a, a history professor teaching Civil War history. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember the guy's name to save my life, but I can picture him in my head. He was a visiting professor. Okay. Uh, and one of the things he made us do is put on the war uniforms, uh, grab a rifle, and march around and do the maneuvers. And then you know you start cool. marching up a hill in formation, and it starts to make a lot more sense, yep. right? Like some of what they're doing and having the actual file and fire and volleys and in our case we fired at dummies and you saw how much of us missed <laughs> and stuff well, it's not it's just the balsters weren't, weren't that accurate the muskets or even the rifles were only good to you know what we would consider pistol range probably today yeah uh, and so when you start understanding all that and how minimal changes could change everything yeah like what if the black hand missed world war one never happens right and so that's, that's the fun thing about alternative history is yes. you could pick one small, seemingly in, insignificant thing mm -hmm. and everything's different. That's where you get the step on a butterfly time yep. travel paradox, right? You go back to the dinosaurs and you step on a butterfly and you have what they call the butterfly effects. Yes, yes. Um, yes. And that so Bradbury, Bradbury story. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. And so it's it's the one of the fascinating things about alternative history is when you start to just really think about it. And if I change this what happens i wish more sci-fi authors did that with their technology okay let's say i do invent this you know widget okay how does that change things right. and they want to have the cool widgets and then have everyone do everything like we did it today well no because that's going to change everything so um maybe maybe i'm just biased because i grew up in an age where i watched some of that in real life i went from when i learned marksmanship you learned a side profile silhouette to aim because okay. you had no body armor so you didn't want to make a bigger target uh, 
you get body armor with the savvy plate on your chest to cover your vital organs and suddenly you're standing you know feet planted chest out because if you're going to get shot might as well hit the chest plate you know yep. uh, and, and that changed tactics drastically and if that one small change makes it what about all these other changes what would that do if that was different sure no, I've got a, a dear friend who is uh, I taught with for several years. He's an actual Texas historian, if I'm not mistaken. He published an academic paper recently, and his thesis, and it's you know very very defensible, was that the colonization of the state of Texas took right off when they invented air conditioning. And if you've had to live through a Texas summer, I've heard people call it Hell's Front Porch down here. It makes perfect sense <laughs> that the, you wouldn't have people moving down here unless they could stay cool. So yeah. One little event. I mean, was it Orlando, I think, built a statue to the guy that invented air conditioning? I could believe it. <laughs> I could both totally believe it. God bless the man. Although, having, that. I've been to Colonial Williamsburg up here, and uh, you look at the way the buildings were designed. Part of that is when you design a building to accommodate the actual local weather, you can do that naturally, and it doesn't get as hot in there as we would think of these, you know, isolated boxes we built today. Oh. So that that plays a factor too. That's why they had the transom windows over the doors. It was to allow the heat to escape or you know oh. the cool air in with breezes. That's how you get the shotgun houses in Louisiana, where the the humidity can get stifling. It's because if you open both doors, you get a breeze straight through the house. Oh, there you go. And, and that's the kind of stuff people don't think about when they write alternative history. That's why people like. Uh, <laughs> Harry Turtledove right. did such an amazing job is because he, he got into that nitty gritty and he said, okay, what if I changed this one thing? Mm -hmm. So I think it's cool that you did the same thing with your difference engine. I'd never even heard of that. Oh yeah. Um, that's, that's crazy. How did you stumble upon that to get that idea? Um, well, I mean, I, I remember the first time I actually heard of it was when I was about 15 years old. It was 1985, 86 school year. And I was in Mr. Grimes's computer class. Back then, we were still tapping away on Apple IIs and Commodore 64s in basic language. Yeah. Oh, good. So yeah, you remember. And uh, you know, the only time you'll see basic computer language used anymore is like I think in the second or third season of Stranger Things when uh, Sam Gamgee gets eaten by a bunch of dogs after he programs something in basic. But uh, <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. But um, no, they basically, we had to take a test on the history of computers. Mr. Grimes was very, you know, we wanted to learn how, how am I going to build space invaders? I want to make my own video games. No, first you're going to learn the history of computers and we ground our teeth, but that's where I first saw the, the uh, Babbage's difference engine. And, uh, there have been other books and stories. I think there's a there's an entire book called The Difference Engine, you know, kind of a thing. And it has a number of all those steampunk tropes put into it, you know, everything, you know, uh, and so forth. But that was the first place I ever saw that. And, you know, people have suggested what would have happened if that had you know, come in. There have been a number of uh, books in the steampunk genre that have asked that. You know, what if this particular event occurred? Um, my daughter got seriously mad at me for one of them, because she loves, loves, loves the story Pride and Prejudice. And I teach English. I've taught the book three times. I'm sorry. I do not understand why any girl would like Fitzwilliam Darcy, other than the fact that he's rich. He has no personality. That's my that's my opinion. But uh, there was a steampunk story written where um, they, you know, talking about one particular uh, event. What if Admiral Nelson lost to uh, old hooky Nelson, General Nelson lost to Napoleon at Waterloo. 
Well, suddenly he has to go to the Bentley and Darcy family and all these other folks at Pemberley for help. So suddenly the Pride and Prejudice crew are on these, you know, they call them moon boats, these little tiny dirigibles, and they lead an attack on Napoleon's uh, fortress kind of thing. It's kitschy fun. But again, what if? What if this battle had gone the wrong way? What if Napoleon could have gotten on a horse and seen the battlefield a little easier? Little known fact, uh, apparently part of the reason he lost at Waterloo was because he had terrible hemorrhoids that morning and couldn't sit on his horse. So he couldn't actually see what was going on in the battle. He had to rely on reports. And fun fact, he's not as short as the, you know, the popular media would have you think that the little man syndrome is known as Napoleon complex. Yep. He wasn't actually that short. He towered uh, over and, several guys. The average guy was about five, one, he was five, four, I think. So yeah, he would have towered over. Most yeah. Guys. And he, uh, it could have gone either way at Waterloo. Uh, uh, they split their forces to, to, you know, defeat. Was it, uh, there's a name for that. Uh, that maneuver where they defeat in detail, I believe is the expression, okay. but don't quote me on that. But yeah, so that could have gone either way. So it's not unfeasible yep. at, uh, at several points along the way. Um, so you know, we've talked a lot about your characters in the world and, and we dabbled far afield into history nerddom, which I was loving all of. Hope we didn't bore the audience. Uh, <laughs> but since we talked about characters, do you have a favorite character archetype when you're writing? Um, yeah, I definitely do. I, I think I mentioned him earlier. I love the kind of character who basically has figured out how to live life in this direction. You know, Luke Skywalker doesn't like being a farm boy in Tatooine, but he knows how to do it, you know, or things like that. Odysseus, he likes being a farmer king. He knows how to do it. He's got he's got it pretty much sewn up. And I love to have a situation where you've got somebody who essentially is comfortable and has all the tools mentally and physically they need to exist in the world they know. And suddenly they're dropped in the middle of a world they don't know and they have to adjust using what they've got. Um, you know, there was, uh, I think, uh, Emilio Estevez was in a similar, this was one film that kind of inspired me uh, in that trope. It's a film called Judgment Night, where they are just basically a bunch of guys who are, you know, fun fellows, they're salesmen, they're successful stockbrokers. And suddenly they end up in a family camper in the worst part of town in the ghetto and they can't get out for various reasons. So they're stuck there. How do they survive? And so the, the, that's the kind of trope I really, really like to see, you know, can this person use what they know now and adapt it to their new circumstance? So that's the kind of trope I like to see as much in a character as much as possible. So that Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court vibe going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, Although Mark Twain, he always liked to be the smartest guy in the room, you know, and he, he, he often was. I won't begrudge him that. But the Connecticut Yankee, he is the smartest guy. He figures out how to bring electricity, and he uses all of his machine abilities to his advantage in King Arthur's court. What if you've got somebody who really doesn't quite, their skills don't translate quite as easily as, say, a mechanical engineer's would over in Arthurian England? Um, in the case of Gilbert, he has to learn a new skill. He has to learn how to do punch carding, modern-day programming. How is he going to be able to use that now that he's got that skill to stop a runaway train and save everybody on board? How is he going to use that to break out of this little collector box that the tripods have put him in, which is where they put their victims before they suck their blood out? How is he going to get out? So how is he going to get out of the sewers that he's stuck in using what he knows now? So that's... And again, when you put him in that situation, figuring it out and figuring it out in a way that's not going to leave the reader feeling 
cheated or deus ex machina, like I'm just going to lower a chair from the gods and save him that way. That's that's the most gratifying part for me when I'm actually able to convincingly put somebody in a difficult situation and figure out as if I was there, how are we going to get out of this? How do we get out of this? So that's me. So you mentioned that the tripod attack, it's part of the series. We've talked about the book two and that you're writing book three. It's the young Ch uh, Chesterton Chronicles. Yep. After the yep. third book, what's next? Is there going to be more in this world? You know, that all depends on how well it sells, to be quite honest. Um, we had, I basically had just finished the first draft of Tripod's Attack got published in 2008. And The Emperor of North America got published two years later in 2010. And uh, by 2012, I had published another book, a side book for the, you know, grade four through eight crowd called The King's Gambit. And it was really well received for that crowd, too. It's also by my publisher, Hillside. But I had just finished the first draft of um, Where the Red Sands Fly, where Gilbert is on Mars. And he's looking for a pair of siblings he didn't know he had. Uh, what ended up... What happened, uh, among other things, we had some family upheavals. Uh, my wife had a debilitating stroke, which, you know, basically, sorry. You, know, you know, she's doing great now. You wouldn't know it. She's, she's just doing wonderfully. It's been close to 10 years now. But all those kinds of events and all the things, you know, we ended up moving out of state to Texas. We had a lot of pushback from folks who thought it was not a good idea at the time. It turned out to be a good idea you know <laughs> all the rest but we just had so many things going on and uh so yeah i still could see gilbert having oops i just knocked my laptop back gilbert could have a number of adventures you know um but uh we'll just see what happens with it i've got him basically gilbert one of the things that it was a lot of fun to do um with uh, the where the red sands fly the third book I managed to flip Gilbert back and forth between his time as a 40-year-old and as an 18-year-old. Things he does when he's 18 have a direct effect and consequence on when he's 40. And so for me, if I were to do a fourth book, I'd have to decide, am I going to set this you know, in his 18-year-old time period or in his 40-something time period? So that's one thing that I would have to consider. Maybe I'll do both. Maybe I'll do – I've done a few short stories – uh, for the children of friends with characters from Gilbert and so forth. So I might stick to that initially, but I'll wait till the inspiration hits me. Okay. So we've talked about all of the steampunk technology that you put into this book. You've told us a lot about the world. Uh, what tech that you created specifically for this book or this universe would you want for your own use? <laughs> would any of it trump what we already have now would any of it be an improvement uh you know honestly you know you remember the 64 you remember the Commodore 64 we had the I do. back then you had the floppy yeah. disks. you had to pop them in and uh we are at a point now actually i had a thumb drive around my neck and one of my students looked at it and said what's that <laughs> where do you store your information in the cloud okay Personally, I love the idea. I know, you know, you could argue that, you know, yeah, I lost an edited version of my book, you know, and had to start from scratch again. But uh, I love the idea of basically just having a punch card, a, a blank card, and having a little gadget where I could just snip, 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 and things would happen. To me, 
you know, you could, I would put a disc into a black box and on the screen would be a game or something that I could use to get an A in school with, or I could type a paper and just move the cursor back and change it. Revolutionary. If I could pick any of that information for myself, I'd love to be able to do the punch cards myself. The idea that I could just clip, 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 and the average person would not be able to discern it, but I know what it is, and it would be safe so long as I could preserve that paper. So that's, that's I think, what I would like the most, is to have punch card technology. You, sl- you put in the slot, the pins drop down through the holes, and where the holes are, that's what makes the magic happen. That's how punch card technology worked. Then that's how it works in my book. That's what I'd like to have if I could pick one thing from that today. Okay, so obviously your your books have aliens in them. Um, yep. we, we've kind of covered that. So when you created these aliens, how do you go about doing that? Do you let nature inspire you, myths and lore, your nightmares? Like, what's the inspiration for the nightmare for the aliens as you create them? Well, uh, for the tripods attack, I basically looked at what H.G. Wells had put together, and for him, the aliens. Uh, you know, they're generically called the squids, but the aliens essentially are living brains that will plug themselves into different machines the way we will wear different sets of clothes. So that's kind of a nightmarish thing. Uh, but uh, when you go, say, to Mars, you know, the idea that uh, Rice Burroughs had when he did uh, Mr. John Carter, you know, uh, the idea then was that all the races on Mars essentially are humanoid in appearance, right down to having five-digit five-digit hands. I've often wondered, you know, would he ever have drawn a connection that maybe there were humans that had gone to Mars, or maybe that the humans are on Earth are descended from Mars? I like looking at, you know, how could this have happened? Because just happening in nature seems really, really unlikely uh, for a humanoid race to evolve on Mars. We may like, you know, Deja Thoris is the, uh, you know, the, the uh, chainmail bikini wearing wife of, <laughs> of um, John Carter and all that. Not likely going to happen in real life. So for me, yeah, some to a degree mythology, but I also looked a lot at, you know, he mentions, you know, what's his name? H.G. Wells mentioned not only the, uh, the squid like creatures who invade Earth, but he also mentioned a number of humanoid creatures who had been brought along in the uh, squid's cylinders when they came to Earth. And they were essentially food for the, um, for the you know, Martian squids. So in Where the Red Sands Fly, I talk about those guys. Those are kind of spindly fellows who do a lot of work on Mars. They are the native Martians. Um, I really wanted to bring in a lot of other characters and... Um, aliens from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. I'm surprised how many people don't know. He actually, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books, wrote a science fiction trilogy too that took place on Mars and Venus. But unfortunately, I found out the copyright has not run out on those. And uh, C.S. Lewis's estate was not willing to give permission for me to use them in the book. So I had to sack those. But essentially, looking at the characters, the kinds of aliens that were in those series, over a hundred years ago, I like to pull them in and then I like to try and build bridges. Okay, how could these guys all have been on the same planet and not killed each other? And so I had a good time with that. Hope that okay. makes sense. Hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it, it does. I imagine the, the C.S. Lewis's stuff will be close to the uh, to the hundred year mark soon. 
Yes, yes, it will. Um, not so. That's that's interesting. <laughs> obviously. Um, clearly, this is this interview is winding down. We're at the two hour mark. But uh, before I let you go, is there anything about the Tripod Attacks, which is the first book in the Young Chesterton Chronicles, that we didn't talk about that you want to let us know before we go? Just that uh, you know, I wrote it so that it would be the kind of adventure I would have liked to read when I was younger, and uh, you know, it could be the homeschooling mom who's looking for something for her sons to actually enjoy. Don't give him Anne of Green Gables, okay? That's that's child abuse. No, I'm teasing, but he won't like it. But this is something that a young person. I wrote it for a young person to enjoy. I did not write it to preach to anybody. I wrote it to write a good story, and the feedback I've gotten says that for many people. It is that good story. So pick it up, enjoy it, pay a few bucks, or just read it from a friend. But I just want you to enjoy the story, and I hope you do. Okay. And uh, this is a part of the, introdu uh, the introduction of the interview, dear listener, where I remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. And a new author like a John McDaniel or McNichol, McDaniel, okay. McNichol, uh, could use it. And, you know, obviously he's been you know, taking his time writing these. Life happens. We get it. But uh, in the grander scheme of things, he's competing against people with a bazillion books out. So, you know, help his books stand out. Leave a review if you read it and you enjoy it. Um, so with that being said, John, can you tell listeners how they can find you on the Wild Wild Interwebs? And as usual, it will be linked in the show notes. Awesome. Well, the easiest way to get a hold of them is to go to my Amazon.com page. Please make sure that you get the additions that are done by my current publisher, Hillside. Okay. Um, the ones from Sophia are out of print. Uh, the older version of The Emperor of North America has this cover on it. And while I do like the cover, the book is better if you get the one with the Emperor's headshot on it. So, yes, go to Amazon.com. You'll find the Tripods Attack. You'll find the Emperor of North America, and soon you'll be finding Where the Red Sands Fly, all from Hillside Publishers. All right, and you can find us, dear listener, at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen over at Blasters and Blades Facebook group, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. If you're not sensing a theme there, we've got one. We have a Facebook page that just needs a few more likes so we can get a dedicated URL. So type into that little search bar, Blasters and Blades podcast page and find us and like and follow and do your part people we have a website where uh, you can listen to us at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades again anchor.fm backslash backslash blasters dash and dash blades Ooh, tongue twister where for as little as 99 cents a month you can help us keep the lights on or you could support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast and i promise i will keep my co-hosts doc seska and nick garber duly caffeinated they will drink until their bladder explodes <laughs> and if they were here they would tell you there ain't no quitters uh, and so with that being said thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for the 
aforementioned Nick Garber and Doc Seska. I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters of Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. Thanks, Thanks for stopping by, John. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, J.R. I had a great time.